Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 26th, 2014. There is no theme today. Be advised, no theme. And I say that because I know a lot of you actually try to figure the themes out. And I'm very happy for that. But I don't want to send you on a wild goose chase. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically and help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down. Just put the brakes on. Stop. Open up our Bible. Do some fact-checking. Yeah, yeah. Listen, we care about, you know, whether or not our politicians are telling... No, maybe we don't. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. During the election cycle, okay, there's debates that happen between different presidential candidates or candidates who are running for Senate seats or things like that, right? And uh, and the media, yeah, they they always, you know, they have their fact-checkers. And the fact-checkers will say, well, such-and-such candidates said this, but that's not true. We fact-checked, and we found that this is actually the case. Think of fighting for the faith as kind of like a perpetual um, spiritual fact-checking service, if you would, uh, because there are a lot of folks out there who are making merchandise of people and uh, exploiting them in the name of God, in the name of Jesus and teaching them false and twisted things. And this is not a good thing. And so we strive, if you would, to inoculate you uh, to false doctrine. And the way we do that is we expose you to that false doctrine from the actual people who are teaching it so that you can be exposed to it. It's in an inoculation because it's in a controlled environment. It's in a weakened state. And then we, on the spot, open up our Bibles, and then take a look and see if what's being said actually squares with what God's Word says so that you can go, whoa, I never, wow, oh, I was being schnookered and, or bamboozled and hoodwinked, right? Because we don't want you to be schnookered, bamboozled, or hoodwinked because, well, sound doctrine matters because sound doctrine is going to point you to Jesus and what he's done. It's going to point you to the truth. False doctrine is going to point you to you or point you to the false teacher. Um, and oftentimes, 
because it goes along with a very hefty price tag. Uh, the first down payment of false doctrine is generally uh, 10% of your gross annual income, and then uh, when you die, your soul in hell. Yeah, that's generally how that works. So we try to save you, uh, uh, save your money, save your soul. That's the idea. And we preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. And we properly distinguish between the law and the gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins, try to teach you the full counsel of the word of God. And we use false teachers, if you would, as our foil. Now, as a result of that, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, well, it's politically incorrect. But you see, the thing is, is that political correctness is the unwritten law of the land. And here at Fighting for the Faith, I'm of the opinion that I'm not actually required to obey unwritten laws of the land. You know what I'm saying? And if there were, if these laws were written, that were, they said, "Thus saith the United States of America: You can no longer say that people are sinners and that Jesus died for their sins." You know what I'd say? I'd say that's very nice of you, but you don't have the authority to do such a thing. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and so I'm going to continue to do what He said, and you'll have to take it up with Him on the Day of Judgment. So, yeah, you get what. I'm saying here. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We have uh, a little bit of a conundrum, if you would. Uh, and the conundrum is this, is that I have been studiously trying to figure out who this man is, who is... Um, who is uh, that I'm going to be featuring during our money-grubbing televangelist portion of hour number one today. Now, we didn't get to him yesterday. All I know is that this is a gentleman who preached at... Um, yeah, at T.D. Jakes's Potter's house, and I have yet to figure out who he is, although yeah, I've put it out on the internet, on Facebook and Twitter, and I have to check those uh, prior to the segment, maybe during the first break, to see if anyone has solved the problem, has figured out who this guy is, because I want to give him proper attribution, if you would, because he, <laughs> after hearing him, you're going to realize, yeah, this is somebody that we should avoid like the plague, and I would say, Yes, this is most certainly true. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to do. We're going to begin with a Patricia King update. Yep. And uh, Patricia King is going to wax eloquent about why we need the glory. Apparently, we need the glory. Um, and then we'll, after listening to that, uh, again, uh, the Hebrew-ish heresies are making all the rounds right now. And uh, and so uh, we're going to talk about... Um, a prophetic word from James Gall uh, regarding Rosh Hashanah. That would be the Jewish New Year. Uh, apparently, you know, God's really speaking right now to uh, the false prophets. And notice I said false prophets, not true prophets, because he ain't a true prophet. So uh, we'll take a listen to that. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we'll dive into a Sid Roth uh, uh, slash Bill Johnson update. Bill Johnson recently appeared on Sid Roth's program. It's been a while since we've done a full-blown Bill Johnson update. We'll take a listen to the, some of the things said by Bill Johnson and Sid Roth. I think it's kind of a dual update, if you would. And then we'll uh, do our money-grubbing televangelist update. And as soon as I get a moment, I'll check my Facebook and Twitter to see if anyone's actually figured out who this guy is. I My, my thinking is this, is that um, with, you know, 10, 11,000 plus people on Facebook and Twitter, you know, respectively following me there that somebody in the Internet's going to know who this guy is and will get me the information just in time, just in time. So <clears throat> I have, uh, let's just say, the utmost faith in uh, my Facebook and Twitter followers. So and then in hour number two, we are going to be listening to a sermon from Alistair Begg. 
Alistair Begg. And wow, this is a great sermon. Uh, I, I forget the name. It's like Weak Men or Weak Women. Uh, you know, Bad Men, Weak Women, I think is the name of the sermon. We'll give you the details shortly. But uh, this is a timely, timely, timely message, uh, one that I think that you will find most helpful, kind of like uh, Phil Johnson's uh, sermon that we played last week, which was just a barn burner. So that's what we're going to do to round out the week and uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And again, I should reiterate, there is no theme today. Oftentimes, uh, Friday episodes are kind of like the scraps and leftovers. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a hot dog. You know, it's it's not it's all the different pieces that, you know, that are left and you th- throw them into a a hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> That's the wrong metaphor. I think I've used that before too. Anyway, you you get what I'm saying. So, uh buckle in, uh, fasten your seatbelts. Tinfoil pyramid hats and fuzzy money slippers will help with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith and since we're going to start off with the Patricia King update that requires us to do this. So, have you ever sat down and, you know, tried to figure out just why we need the glory? No. I I guarantee you this has never been a question that's crossed my mind, but um, Patricia King over at XP Media has decided that uh, this is a a burning question that uh, she has, she's got to go on the air and give us the answer to. So, without any further ado, here is Patricia King and why... We need the glory. Here we go. Hi there. I want to be able to help you access the glory dimension of... Mm-hmm. You, you want to help me access the glory dimension. Don't you think that if God intended me to access the glory dimension, he would say it really clearly in the Bible. Uh, I want you to experience the glory dimension, and here's how you do it. Don't you think God would have just done that if... Uh, why would he leave it up to Patricia King to explain this to me? If you know, if this is what God wanted, wouldn't the Bible just simply say so? The kingdom of God. You know, it was a number of years ago um, that I was hungry for the glory. I'd been hearing people share their experiences, you know, out-of-body experiences and things that I'd seen in Scripture, but I hadn't yet encompass those things myself or embrace those things myself yeah this, this, see the thing is is that those weren't actually common yeah i mean even the apostle paul when he talks about his trip to heaven he speaks of, of himself in third person and uh yeah he, he doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body he doesn't know that's what he said and then through a 30-day visitation with the Holy Spirit. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit vi- visited you for 30 days. Um, did you keep him in a spare bedroom? Every day he would come to me and open up the scriptures and open up revelation concerning the access of every believer into those dimensions. Did you know that every believer can access, for example, the heavens, the throne room of God? Where in the Bible does it say that every believer can do that? And I want to see it in context, not a Bible verse ripped out of context. The invisible dimensions of the glory realm. Did you know that that's accessible for every single believer? Well, in this series, because I'm going to do six different programs, one after the other, on this series called Into the Glory. And I'm going to whet your appetite and hopefully make you really, really hungry for all that God offers you in the Word of God. 
But right now, let's turn to the scripture. And if you have your Bible Mm -hmm. uh, with you right now, turn to Colossians 3. 1 to 3. Colossians 3, 1 to 3. Let's take a look at it before she reads it. We'll add a little bit of context. Um, Yeah, let me back this up. Mm, Yeah, uh, let me go into Colossians 2. We'll go into Colossians 2 and we'll throw 3 into the mix. And we'll start at verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. So we have a good wide context to work with here. Here's what it says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head in all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made alive, made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Wow, it seems like the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing about Patricia King. You know, somebody who goes on in detail about so detail about so-called visions puffed up without reason by her sensual mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and it grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism in the severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For if you have died, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what does it mean then to set your minds on things that are above? Well, here's what Paul then goes on to say. So therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
So Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us to set our minds on things that are above, and what that means here is to put to death what is earthly in us, sexual immorality, evil passions, desires, covetousness, idolatry, things like that. That's what Paul explains. So notice that Patricia King, though, in looking at Colossians chapter 3, she just wants to snip out, snip, 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 uh, verses 1 through 3. Why? Because by ripping it out of context, she's going to be able to make it say what she wants it to say. Oh, see, it says set your minds on things that are above. That means glory, visitations, out-of-body experiences, and stuff like that. No, it doesn't. When you read the passage in its entire context, it's not talking about such things. But I kind of jumped the gun a little bit. Let's let Patricia explain it to us. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, this is an amazing scripture because it's actually giving us permission to look up to the heavens, to seek those things that are above. And that's not actually what the text is saying when you put it in its fuller context. There's a specific application he's getting to, and that's putting to death um, our sinful desires. Where Christ is seated. These have been made available to you and to me through the finished work of the cross. That's not what this text is actually saying. And that's what I want to introduce you to. You know, just think of the Bible and think of all the different stories that you read about within the Word of God. Like, for example, one of them that I love is found in the book of Ezekiel. And you see the prophet sitting there and all of a sudden a hand comes out of the, the invisible realm, picks him up by the locks of the hair, and it says in the scripture that it suspends him between heaven and earth. And then he was taken in to the visions of God. Now, yeah, and Ezekiel was truly a called prophet of God. Yeah, and, you know, according to Daniel, now prophecy and vision are sealed. Just imagine if that was you. I mean, we read it as a story in the Bible and we think, yeah, 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 but that was Ezekiel. Um, but that's not for me. And sometimes when we read these Bible stories, we actually don't think it's for now. Well, see, that's kind of the issue is, is that, God can do whatever God wants to do. I mean, he clearly is God. But see, the thing is, is that just because it happened to Ezekiel doesn't mean that somehow there's a tacit promise in there that these types of things are going to happen to me or to you or whatever, as if they're normative. They're not. Even in the time of Ezekiel, what Ezekiel experienced wasn't normative. He was one of only a few people who were set aside by God to be prophets to Israel. But whatever you see has happened in the Bible to someone else. It is a possibility with the leading of the Spirit that that could easily happen to you. And how do you figure? You know, just because God is God and it's a possibility it can happen to you. But see, the thing is, you can't go to an actual passage in context that says we should expect that this will happen to us. Have you ever thought that you would be taken by God into the visions of God? You know, when I you know, was reading that very portion out of Ezekiel, I thought, Lord, you know, I don't have much hair, but you can have it. If you wanted to pick me up by the locks of my hair and suspend me between heaven and earth, I would love that. So you want God to pull your hair. <clears throat> let me re- let me reread that portion from Colossians chapter 2. 
that uh, warned us about people like uh, Patricia. Let no one disqualify you in sitting on, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, or going on in detail about visions. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And I've actually, in God, since I allowed my hunger to surface, I have had some really crazy encounters with him and i'm sure they were crazy experiences i do recall your werewolf story um but see the thing is is patricia you twist god's word so why would god the holy spirit be the source of these strange experiences that you claim that you're having hmm just maybe i'll share some of those with you oh please do in this um series that i'm presenting to you Another example that we have in scripture is about like Moses. I mean, just think about Moses. Yeah, Moses is one of the head and shoulders guys, you know, prophets of the Old Testament. And uh, how many Moseses were there? Yeah, just one, just one. And uh, yeah, uh, so why should I expect that whatever happened to Moses, I should expect it's going to happen to me too, you know? There he was, you know, he was had his fear issues and he had his insecurity issues, but he went... Fear issues and insecurity issues. Strange way to put it. With God, and he's bringing a whole nation out of bondage. So all of a sudden they get to the Red Sea and they've got their enemies behind them. The Egyptians are out to go after them and conquer them and overtake them. And God says, Moses, just, you know, stretch out your hand with that rod. And he does so. And the whole sea rolls back. And all of Israel walks forth on dry ground. It's supernatural. Well, yeah, clearly. Um, so this should happen in our lives, too. But if you think that this should happen to you, I think you should practice on small bodies of water first. You know, maybe like, a, a, you know, one of those kiddie pools, you know, that you can get at Walmart and stick it in your yard. Start small and kind of work your way up, you know. That is not natural. And yet the supernatural invaded the natural and it became an encounter that they had with God. But not only that, right after they get to the other... Yeah, see, the point wasn't, quote, the encounter with God. That wasn't the point. Their side, the heavens open up and manna comes down out of heaven to meet their daily food requirements. Yes, and that was a supernatural thing. And you know what? The whole manna thing ended as soon as they entered the promised land. Yes, bread from heaven. That place in the wilderness was amazing. It was a supernatural place of visitation with God. This actually happened. This is in the Bible. They actually picked up food off the ground that God had given them from heaven and ate food from heaven. Yeah, uh, pointing to the miracles in the Bible as if somehow because that happened in, in a particular time in biblical history, that somehow that's going to be normative and we should expect those same things now. Yeah, yeah, you're taking a descriptive historical text and making it prescriptive. Again, why should I believe God the Holy Spirit speaking to you? You have no clue how to rightly handle God's word. Ate food that directly came out of heaven. Not only that, water came out of the rock. Supernaturally, rock water was provided for them by what came out of the rock. They drank it every single day. And Paul said the rock was Christ. Mm-hmm. And ate that bread every single day. Supernatural provision for 40 years. They encountered God. Not only that, he directed them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had supernatural aircon 
during the day and they had a furnace to keep them warm at night and they could be moved by the presence of God either in the day or by night because God's presence was tangibly with them. I could go on and on and on and share stories out of the Bible about how God had encounters with his people. In fact, if you were to take out of the Bible all the encounters that God had with his people, all you would have left in the Bible is pages full of doctrine. Now, doctrine is awesome, but God is greater than a God of doctrine. (laughs) She's trying to teach us doctrine here, though. Isn't that weird? He is a God of encounter. He is a God of experience. Oh, a God of encounter, a God of experience. Which doctrine, which doctrinal passage actually says that, that we should expect that? And he wants us to experience him. Now, don't you think that if it's all about it, the experience and that God wants us to experience him and, you know, that doctrine stuff, you know, it's okay, but no, he wants us to. Don't you think there would be a doctrinal passage that actually says, thus saith the Lord, the doctrine is, but I really just want you to experience me. Don't you think the Bible would actually say that? And the weird thing is, is if it, there was a passage that said that would actually be a doctrine. Weird, huh? Anyway, I think you get the point. Moving along real quick here, you know, as we're coming into Rosh Hashanah, I don't know what it is with evangelicals and their uh, fascination now with the Jewish feast days, but apparently God the Holy Spirit is speaking to James Gall. So here's a prophetic word for Rosh Hashanah from uh, James Gall. Here we go. James Gall, Happy New Year and the Jewish New Year, the 10 days of all, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. And I'm with Encounters Network and Prayer Storm and the God Encounters Training East School of the Heart. Hey, what is the Holy Spirit speaking in this hour? Well, one of the things he's talking to me about is it's time for the Holy Ghost Woodstocks. <laughs> what? So God wants Holy Ghost Woodstock. Okay, this, I, now listen, I I was born in the 60s, but I do not remember Woodstock. I'm not quite that old, but I do remember, wasn't Woodstock like, you know, the flower children and free love and, you know, all that kind of, you know, sex and rock and roll and drugs and things like, it wasn't that, because the Holy Ghost wants us to have that? 1969, 400,000 crazy young people got together in upper state New York. Well, guess what? It was a counterculture movement. It's now time for us, the church, to rise. We're going to be the counterculture movement, and there's going to be an explosion of praise and worship. And yeah, see, now this is a guy who claims that he experiences God. Yeah, the, the way Patricia King is trying to tell us, well, we need to experience God. And he's thinking that God wants us to have a, a, a Holy Ghost Woodstock. Yeah, are you sure that's God the Holy Spirit you're experiencing there, James? Out in the streets and out in the pastures and out in the fields. Another one of the things that recently happened, it's the sounds of heavenly hope. When I was in my room alone... I was, I'm hearing these sounds of bells and chimes. It was the most beautiful orchestrated noise. And and I'm thinking I'm asleep. And I like test myself. No, I was awake. And so I go to my alarm clock and I'm going, there's no sound coming from out of there. I actually go to my iPhone and I, it was actually turned off. And and I'm going, and I just bask 
and these chimes and these sounds of heavenly hope. As a fax machine is going off in the background. Mm-hmm. And then I go, oh, my gosh. And then I go, oh, I think there's a message for me on my iPhone. I turn it on. I go, I have a message from a friend from another country. And they said, hey, listen, everything is going to be okay and God's going to provide. So guess what? I have a word for you. The sounds of heavenly hope, a positive expectation of good is coming your way. Uh, right after the Holy Ghost Woodstock. Woo! It's so... <laughs> There you go. See, the th- yeah, yeah, I listen to folks like this, you know, who are the major proponents. Oh, we need to be experiencing God, the Holy Spirit. And I take a close listen to what it is that these people claim that they're experiencing. And it's so Looney Tunes. Again, they make, you know, they make the Holy Spirit seem like he's the, um, well, the, the, he needs to be committed. That, he, you know, he's that member of the Trinity that they keep over in the spare room, you know, with the white walls and, you know, the jacket with the long sleeves. Um, but see, God, the Holy Spirit ain't like that at all. These people, uh, well, they're not actually speaking the truth. And God, the Holy Spirit isn't really talking to them. And that's not the Holy Spirit that they're experiencing. You, you get what I'm saying. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we've got a, a, a Sid Roth, Bill Johnson update, as well as an update from our unknown televangelist, who I think will figure out who it is uh, by the time I get back from the break. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents... Church Day Select. Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas. And it turns out, I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you could be casual at work. And they's always having that 25-cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not-so-nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, But Saturday is so much better. With everyday being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. 
Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line. Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy. Seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Listening to Fighting for the Fake could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with those who are claiming that they're having experiences from the Holy Spirit. Because when you test what they're saying against God's Word, you realize they're not. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it moving along
That's right. The truth is out there somewhere. It's time for another installment of Bill Johnson's X-Files. We have no clue where the truth is when we hear him, but we know it's out there somewhere. That's about all I can say, because every time I listen to Bill Johnson, it's a mysterium tremendum. Back off on the music here. All right, so uh, <laughs> that's our Bill Johnson update music. If you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith for a while, then you know that uh, historically that's the music that we use to introduce a Bill Johnson here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, Bill Johnson recently appeared on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. In fact, this past week he appeared on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. And uh, Sid Roth, well, he's going to introduce uh, Bill Johnson to his studio audience and, uh, well, um, <clears throat> we're going to experience some Bible twisting. Let's just put it that way. So without any further ado, here's Sid Roth to introduce Bill Johnson on the It's Supernatural program. Here we go. Hello. Welcome to my world where it's naturally supernatural. You know, my guest found a key. And he operates in so many major miracles, it's almost unfair. And, and th- th- this is his key. He read a scripture one day. Yeah, but the, see, the thing is, again, I keep coming back to this, is that uh, we've demonstrated here at Fighting for the Faith that pretty much every time Bill Johnson opens his mouth uh, regarding the Bible, what comes out of his mouth isn't actually what the Bible says. This is a problem. In fact, uh, during our debunking of the Holy Ghost movie, we demonstrated that, you know, quite bluntly, that Bill Johnson, he was saying things that are flat out the exact opposite of what Scripture says. Go back and listen to our debunking the Holy Ghost movie, and uh, you know what I'll be, what I'm, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. So, why should I believe that he operates in miracles when he wrongly handles? the word of truth, which is, well, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Why would God the Holy Spirit have give miracles and wonders and signs to Bill Johnson when he doesn't rightly teach the, what the Bible actually says? Hmm? That said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, get this, on earth as it is in heaven. So the key, apparently, to miracles is understanding that when you pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what you're praying for are signs, wonders, miracles. You know, that's actually not it. And uh, how does God's kingdom come to us? Answer, it comes to us when we hear the preaching of the gospel. When we're brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the kingdom of God has truly come to us. Now, what's fascinating is is that this, it, if you're familiar with sojourners and the so-called liberal red-letter Christians, oh, these are the guys who say, oh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that's the promise of social justice because, well, there's no poverty in heaven. And so when we're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's our mandate to go and change the world and eradicate poverty. But that's not what the text says. It's weird that what you know what the the charismatics do with this text is uh, like it, birds of a feather. What the liberals do with this text with just completely different understandings, totally. But again, the kingdom of God comes when. This is where I think uh, Luther is very helpful in the uh, small catechism. From the small catechism, here's what it says: Second petition, Thy kingdom come. What does this mean? 
The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. So how does God's kingdom come? Answer, God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, What does this mean? Well, the good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. Well, how is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come, and when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. You'll notice that Martin Luther's answer in the small catechism is based upon a biblical understanding of the will of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where does it say in Scripture that God's will for us is to, you know, have, you know, encounters of the bizarre and the weird? Well, I don't think it says that anywhere. But let's continue. Here we go. And he figured out there's no sickness in heaven. There's no fear in heaven. There's no poverty in heaven. And he figured out keys of how, and it's just so, so profound and so wonderful of how all of us can walk on earth as we would do in heaven. Yeah, that's not what Jesus is having us pray for there. I want you to get ready. To not just hear a man that walks in spectacular miracles, but get ready for heaven to invade earth. Yeah, there'll be an invasion, all right, but it won't be heaven invading earth. Just, you know, it'll probably be the other place invading. You know what I'm saying? Now, we're instructed in the Bible to have a renewed mind, but Bill Johnson. Uh, this was, if not the key, one of the major keys to transform your walk with God into uh, the kingdom of heaven, yeah. being on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, what do you mean by a renewed mind? A renewed mind is the mind of Christ. It's actually seeing from God's perspective. For somebody who's a miracle worker, don't you find it odd that Bill Johnson wears prescription glasses? You know, if you're a miracle worker, wouldn't God fix your... Yeah, you never mind. He sees things differently. Jesus wasn't nervous when there was a need to feed the multitudes and they only had a few loaves and fishes. He sees differently. And he expected his disciples, through the experience of the miraculous, to learn to see the way he did. Uh, What? How are you getting that? You know... Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is reminiscent of God feeding the children of Israel in the wilderness, which points to Jesus Christ being the Messiah and the Lord himself in human flesh. That's the point of that. In fact, he asked them, can't you perceive? Don't you understand? He asked them that question when they were worried about not having enough food for lunch, and it was right after multiplying food. So they were still locked into a earth to heaven perspective. You know, a lot of people read the Bible, but we're so bombarded by everything going on on earth, we, we, it, it's almost... We're so bombarded with false teachers and false prophets like Bill Johnson that, you know, it's almost like 
how can we even know what the Bible says anymore? It's like it goes in one ear and out the other, and we go back into automatic pilot. That's true. Most believers live from earth towards heaven, hoping, begging God to intervene, to come into the middle of a problem. The renewed mind is living from heaven towards earth. If you had understood these premises you're teaching today uh, as a new believer, what difference would it have made in your ministry? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. First of all, it starts with the cornerstone of theology, the goodness of God, that he actually is good. He's a father. He's a loving father that sent his son to an orphan planet. And when you realize the goodness of God, his... I agree, God is good. ...kindness, that he's a loving, perfect father, then suddenly that changes everything. The way you see him, the way you see yourself, the way you see your past, the way you see your potential. Everything shifts and changes when you realize that you have an absolutely loving, perfect father. And it's not a license to do what I want. It's the passion to do what pleases him most and it comes out of that that understanding of what he's like that's the beginning of the renewed mind it changes how we see him uh, so so just just give me an illustration <clears throat> someone walks up to you they say my hip is hurting me what goes on what's the process inside of you what do you do next well first of all jesus healed everyone who came to him And he healed everyone the Father directed him to. So my approach is Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And so my approach is always going to serve that person as though Jesus were standing in these shoes. Sometimes I don't get the breakthrough he would have gotten, but I don't lower the standard of expectation or the standard of... You mean sometimes the person isn't healed? scripture to my level of, of experience. So, so if the, the next 10 people that have a bad hip you pray for and nothing happens, what affects Bill Johnson? What's going on inside of you? Well, if I have 10 people with the same problem come to me and I don't see a breakthrough, for me, that's an invitation to get alone with God to cry out for a breakthrough. It's not as though I have to persuade him. It's that the process of encountering him is what changes me process of encountering him what it oftentimes enables or equips me empowers me to deal with the stuff that he's bringing my way okay you talk a lot about the scripture that says uh where jesus prayed uh that the kingdom of god would take place on earth thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that is a major statement. Uh, Is that how you live your life? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's my focus. I I try. I mean, that's my whole life is, I don't, there is no plan B. You know, he gave us a very... I try? What do you mean you try? Luke's chapter 17, verse 20. So being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, oh, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. <clears throat> we continue. I, wow. Very clear example in how he lived and a very clear commission in what he told us to do. And it, it is to bring the reality of his dominion to earth over any and every situation. The reality of bringing God's dominion to earth over any and every situation, um, which text says that? 
And that's, uh, that's, that's my passion. That's our passion. So help me out. At your school, you require, get this, he requires his students to fail three times. I didn't say be successful three times. He requires them to, why do you do that, Bill? Come on now. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. I used to live in an area where we would steelhead fish, and this old timer took me out fishing. And he says, if you don't get your your tackle, the bait and weight and everything, if you don't get it caught on the bottom of the river now and then, you're not fishing deep enough. And my approach to ministry is, is I have to live with risk to such a point that sometimes it's not going to work. If I play it safe. What's not going to work? What are you talking about? If I if I am, am overly cautious, everybody around me will cause me call me wise, but I won't move many mountains. And so we require our students. So when do you move mountains? Learn to take risk to to go beyond what's comfortable for them to come into new territory. When we talk about failure, obviously we're not dealing with ethical or moral failure. We're talking about just the efforts in ministry to get a word of knowledge. To failing to get a word of knowledge, um, if they really are getting a word of knowledge from God the Holy Spirit, how could they fail to get such a thing? Is God incapable of communicating clearly to people? To bring a word of encouragement to somebody, to sense what God might be saying in a given uh, situation. Uh, we, we want them to, to be stretched and to put themselves at great risk to be used by the Lord. And so that's our approach. So where in the Bible does it say that if I'm stretched and take great risks, that that will be the sign that, oh, well, God's going to see that and go, oh, now I can really use that guy. Yeah, this is not biblical doctrine. This is not Christian theology. This is... Well, the ravings of a man who doesn't rightly handle God's word. Moving along. Don't want no loving. Yeah, time Don't for our no money grabbing no televangelist update. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats, let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El dinero, wanna be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shackles, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oof and whistle for wearing and green. I got that monetary itis like me, just like he might want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle, want that tender that is legal and financially substantially, and his some I can and beagle. Wanna live in regal splendor for that love and legal tender. Money, 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 money. That's right. That's Dr. Teeth from The Muppet Show and money, money, money. Now, uh, I want to let you know that we did figure out who this gentleman is. We want to thank Ron Riley, a listener uh, to Fighting for the Faith. And somebody who follows me on Facebook, he uh, did the work and found out who who we'd be talking about. His name, we're going to be listening to Bishop Henry Fernandez, who recently spoke at the Potter's House. And his message is available for sale if you would like to purchase it for $15 uh, from... TDJakes.org. Um, anyway, what we're going to be listening to is um, Bishop um, Bishop Bishop Henry Fernandez uh, explaining to us how to upgrade your our lives, how to upgrade our lives. And man, this guy has got some 
Well, some chops. This is put it that way. He's Mr. I mean Bishop Hernandez has got some major chops. Makes me wonder what where where's he a bishop from? Is he like T D Jakes? Is he a bishop in the United Pentecostal Church? Is he one of these guys who denies the doctrine of the Trinity? Just wondering, you know. Uh, anyway, uh here is <clears throat> Bishop Hernandez explaining to us how, how we upgrade our life by speaking. Mm-hmm. This is also known as the Word of Faith Heresy. Here we go. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Yeah, that's what Genesis 1 says. In other words, when God showed up in our beginning, emptiness... God showed up in our beginning? Showed up. Hmm. Darkness, chaos. That's how we are. We live in chaos. But uh, yeah, that's because of sin. The God who showed up said, watch me change everything. He opened up his mouth and just start speaking. And whatever he spoke, it was so. Then later he said, let me show you how to change things in your life. Open your mouth. Speak. Yeah, um, can you show me that passage, uh, please? Where in the Bible did God show up and say, hey, hey, let me show you how to change things in your life. Just open up your mouth and speak. You see, we're not gods, even little deities. No, we're creatures. We're human beings made by God. So I'm, yeah, I don't have that ability um, in and of myself. Um, but I'm curious, where did God say, hey, y'all, you take a look. You got some major problems going on in your life. And, you know, hey, here's how you fix it. You just speak. Hmm, not familiar with that text. Speak. He's got them worked up into a frenzy now, doesn't he? Speak. Slap somebody. Tell them speak. Slap them. <laughs> tell them to speak. You might get arrested after doing that. The power is in your mouth. Uh, the power's in my mouth. Really? And there's no passage that says that. Open your mouth. Call those things that are not the way you see them. Call those things that are not the way you see them. Yeah, God God calls the things that are not as though they were. Not human beings. God does that. That You see, I'm not a deity and neither are you. Yeah, I have got to get me a Hammond B3 here. That's, I mean, I think the folks at Kongsvinger would love it if I, you know, would accentuate my preaching with, you know, a Hammond B3 and you know, somebody with some chops like that. The problem with the church today, we're so emotional. Yeah, and you're playing on their emotions now, aren't you? That all we do is... And the devil is saying, I can do it too. Demons don't respond to emotions. Yeah, and Jesus said some of them only come out through prayer. Mountains are not moved by your crying. Wow. 
This guy is slick. Mountains are not moved by your shouting. And heresy can't save you. It damns you. But you open your mouth. Oh, yeah, because you're a little deity. Just open your mouth and, you know, and you can just change your world. And tell them what your God is like. <laughs> yeah, maniacal demonic laugh there. Seems to be a growing trend in the church today. Weird. And maybe that's the thing you lack. How dare you to walk into your situation and tell your problem, I don't care what it is. And you speak to that problem. <laughs> really, I'm supposed to speak to my problems? Mm-hmm. Is this somehow personifying him. I mean, if my problems were to, you know, knock on my door, maybe I'd have a, a chat with him. But what are you talking about? Where does the Bible teach this nonsense? And said, when God showed up in Genesis, chaos was there. Now chaos is in my life. Yeah, now you're narcissizing Genesis 1. Wow. Well, let me talk to chaos. Oh, you go right ahead. Light be. And you're not God. In other words, devil, you're getting out of here. Yeah, the devil wasn't there when God said, let there be light. Hmm. Healing by his stripes, I am already healed. Confused mind, he'll keep that mind that has stayed on him. He'll give me a peace that surpasses human understanding. Yeah, okay. So that's one example of it. I, you know, They put three of them up at T.D. Jakes' YouTube channel. Let's check in with another one. Uh, let's see. Uh, upgrade your life God moment. God moment. Okay. Let's take a listen to this one. Your current experiences. Your current experiences may make you feel like you are stuck in an uncomfortable place. But please know that God is positioning you to get an upgrade in life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah the days are coming when people will not be able to, will not endure sound doctrine, but will gather to themselves Teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. That's right. This is one of those itching ear uh, doctrines. Yeah. Oh, God's positioning you for an upgrade. Oh, wow. I mean, it's like, so it's like going from coach to first class and God's positioning me for that, right? People of God, please understand that this is your God moment. Oh, <laughs> I've been looking forward to one of those. This very moment has been designed by God to get you through years of pain and lack that you've been dealing with. And you cannot afford to let doubt and fear stop you from tapping into your God moment. Oh, yeah. Do whatever you do. Don't let fear stop you from tapping into your God moment. <laughs> I mean, you're all of that in a bag of rice. Wow. Aren't you important? For some of you, the last few years have been a downturn in your life. But after you have been down, there's only one place 
watch him go. Well, actually, no, you could go down further and you could end up in, you know, the grave. I mean, you can go down like six feet under. So just because you've been down doesn't mean that you get to come up. That's not how things always work out in life now, is it? After you've hit bottom, bankruptcy, failed relationships. Yeah, notice he's not preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins, failed relationships. Oh, you mean adultery? Uh, you mean cheating? Uh, what do you, you know, divorce? Uh, you know, we're talking about sin, right? Sickness in your body. Don't have a job. No promotion. This guy sounds, I mean, seriously. I mean, this sounds like the theme of a country and western song. After you've been down, there's only one place to go. And there's somebody in this place this morning. Somebody's streaming right now. God is saying, now that you've been down a long time, watch me pick you up. Yeah. Um, notice the supreme lack of an open Bible there. Quite the theatrics, though. I mean, this, like I said, this guy's got chops. He's got great delivery, and he can really play on people's emotions. But exegete a biblical passage and actually rightly handle God's word and teach us the truth and point us to Jesus and what he's done for us. Um, you know, no, no. No, that's uh, not what we heard there now, is it? Anyway, you get the idea. That's uh, Bishop Hernandez, for those of you uh, wondering. Okay, moving along, we're going to take our second break. And if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll be listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg. And I would just say, compare what you're hearing in hour number two to what you've just heard, and you'll see the difference between sound doctrine versus false doctrine. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a good sermon by Alistair Begg. 
details here in a second. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Truth for Life website at truthforlife.org. This is the Bible teaching ministry of Alistair Begg. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is entitled Bad Men, Weak Women. It is based upon 2 Timothy chapter 3. You were saying which verses? 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's just put it this way. This is a timely message regarding... The danger of false teachers, who they're after, what they're doing, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Alistair Begg does a fantastic job of exegeting this biblical text. And I would just have you compare what he says and how he operates to what you've heard other people operating like in the first hour of Fighting for the Faith. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Alistair Begg and his sermon entitled, Bad Men, Weak women. Here we go. We're going to read from the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's page 996, if you're following along in the Bibles that are around you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we begin at the first verse. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not give very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the verses to which I would like to draw your attention are verses 6 to 9. It begins, For among them, that is among these folks with a power that is uh, absent in relationship to their testimony of godliness, among them are those who act in this particular way. Um, a couple of our friends this week are apparently attending a masquerade ball. I don't know if you've ever been to one. I, I never have. I, I'm not sure that I really like the idea, I suppose. Um, I, I guess it can be playful and harmless. But there's something just about the very name that seems bothersome to me and, and a little bit unsettling. It's probably just my problem. But it partly has to do with just the word itself. And masquerade as an adjective, of course, is used in front of party or ball or celebration. But as a noun, uh, a masquerade is a pretended outward appearance. It is a false outward show. And when you use the word as a verb, to masquerade, it means to go about in disguise, to assume a false appearance. And I guess that's the thing that I just kind of don't like about it. If I go to a party, I want to be able to see people, I want to see their eyes, and I think it's important that they see mine as well. But uh, to spend the evening realizing that underneath the mask, you will be able to find hidden the real person is just a little disturbing to me. And I begin there because that is exactly what Paul is dealing with here in the context of the family of God in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy has been warned about these individuals who are among them there in Ephesus who have been concealing their true selves underneath a masquerade, underneath the mask of uh, presumed godliness. In other words, they've been presenting themselves in a certain way in order to achieve a certain objective, but there is a falsity about them at their very core. We're going to see that they won't get very far, but nevertheless, they do a devastating work. So their, their religious activity, because these individuals uh, are religious, they have a form of godliness, it's a thin disguise for them, uh, there ain't no way, to quote Don Henley, that they can hide their, their lying eyes. I know it's used a little differently, but nevertheless, that's the facts. They, they're not going to be able to do this. Now, I think it's very important that we remind ourselves, and you may do this by turning back with me for a moment to Acts chapter 20, because in Acts chapter 20, Luke records for us, as we know, the departure of Paul uh, from Ephesus. And as he leaves Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, he's able to say to them, you know, I've been very, very faithful in uh, telling you the story of Jesus and what the gospel is all about and so on. And, uh, and now he says, I, I want you to make sure, verse 28, 
that you pay careful attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. This is the responsibility of eldership and leadership in the church, to care for God's people. And it is a very precious thought because these people have been obtained at the cost of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, and the reason this is so important, verse 29, is because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So they're just going to emerge among you. They'll begin to deviate a little bit. They'll begin to twist things just a little bit. In the home Bible study groups, they'll be saying, well, I'm not sure that's what it really means. I don't think that that is this and so on. So he says, if you're going to be overseeing the flock of God here, it is imperative that you pay careful attention, first of all, to yourselves, and then, of course, to those who are under your care. Well, here's a question. We turn back to 2 Timothy 3. Do you think these folks listened to what Paul said? And if they did pay careful attention and tend the flock, how do we account throughout 1 and 2 Timothy for Paul's frequent references to the presence and the harmful influence of false teachers in the Ephesian context? Well, ultimately the answer is, that the devil sows tares amongst the wheat. And that in the presence of righteousness and truth, you will find unrighteousness and error. And that is why, in the same way as parents have to exercise jurisdiction over their children to prevent them from succumbing to tempting influences that may appeal to them, so the leaders in the church of God have to exercise the same kind of care over the spiritual children entrusted to them. And the staggering thought and an important thought is simply this, that if it could happen in Ephesus, and it did, then it can happen in Cleveland. If you've been reading through Murray McShane, you will know that in the course of the readings in the Psalms at the moment, you will have come as I have come. And I used to read verses like this without giving it much thought at all. But now I read them very differently. It's a product of age. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those who come. See what he's saying? He's saying, make sure that I stay the course and that those entrusted to my care are the beneficiaries of all that I've known of your grace and your favor and your faithfulness. That's what Paul is doing. As he says to Timothy, at the time for my departure has come, I'm going away, you're staying. Make sure, Timothy, make sure. And in order that he is not naive about things, He identifies these characters. Let me say again to you that the real threat to the church in Ephesus and throughout all of history, right up until today, is not external political pressure from outside. It's not economic issues. No, the real threat to the church is and always has been and always will be the internal threat of dissolution 
of moral and doctrinal declension on the part of leadership, which then filters through into the very core of churches. You're sensible people, you can figure it out. Towards the end of his life, and I'll give you just one illustration of it from church history, General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who died, I think, in 1912, was asked on the threshold of the 20th, 20th century, what do you see, General Booth, as the peculiar challenges that will face the church in the 20th century? And he replied as follows. The chief dangers, he said, will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? And the story of the 20th century is largely a fulfillment, not entirely, but is largely a fulfillment of the dangers that Booth saw across the horizon. In other words, the, the presence in the existing church of Jesus Christ of those a la 2 Timothy 3.5 who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. Now, Paul is making sure that Timothy and his congregation don't fiddle around with this stuff. It doesn't seem very politically correct. The concluding sentence of verse 5, just three words in English, avoid such people, probably hits most of us a little strangely, creates a little uncomfortableness in us, or discomfort in us, one should say. Because we've been taught, now you're not supposed to avoid anybody. But Paul says, no, you should avoid certain people. And I, what I find fascinating is the fact that Paul is quite prepared to name names. He doesn't name all the names, but he gives us illustrations. In fact, he does so in every chapter, if you check. In chapter 1, dealing with a problem, he says, for example, I'm talking about people like Phygelus and Hermogenes. In chapter 2, he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus. In chapter 4, he says, Demas and Alexander the metal worker who did me great harm. And here in chapter 3, he pulls two figures from the history of the people of God, Janus and Jambres, who were around as con men in the time of Moses the prophet. He says, I want you to make sure that you avoid these people on account of their contaminating influence. Now, he goes on to point out that these characters have a target audience. And their target audience are, is, uh, according to our text here in the ESV, uh, weak women. Weak women. If you're using the NIV, uh, it is weak-willed women. If you're using the King James Version, it is silly women. The adjective is very important. This is not a blanket statement that Paul is making regarding the nature and character of women. That would be absurd. After all, you only need your Bible to make sure that you don't fall foul of that notion, a notion that is perpetrated often. When you hear people speak, they say the Apostle Paul was very unkind to women, he didn't like women, and so on. These people have never paid attention to what the Bible says. He's already given instruction to Timothy as the pastor to make sure that he is exemplary when it comes to the issue of how he cares for the women in his church, because they are to be cared for. This is what he says, 1 Timothy 5, treat the older women as mothers and the girls as your sisters, thinking only pure thoughts about them. 
Why? Because it is imperative that if you're going to exercise pastoral oversight over them, you have to make sure that you don't fall foul of the temptations that are part and parcel of the privileged influence that you have inevitably in people's lives. That's the danger of school teachers over children. Same sex or opposite sex. People in influence and authority. And so Paul is very, very concerned. I mentioned this, of course, in the first service. In the second service, I, I met a number of mothers as I was walking around. And I met a number of sisters, I suppose. Although, as I, as I passed a, a group of uh, uh, young ladies, I said to myself, well, these are my sisters. And then as I went into my cave and closed the door, I said, no, actually, these are my daughters. <laughs> that's, that's how old I am. So, so I got a new category as well. You see, the older women as mothers, uh, the, 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 the sort of mid-core as sisters. And then once you go down a notch, then they become your daughters. But the point is, in, in, in a concern for the welfare of their own spiritual growth. Because these fellows were at the game. These charlatans had a completely different agenda. So I'll leave it to you to follow this up. But you read the letters of Paul and you will discover the number of women that were involved in ministry with him and the affection that he had for them and the respect that entails to them, even, for example, if you only read Romans chapter 16. Now, the false teachers are targeting this particular kind of woman, a weak-willed woman, a silly woman. In other words, they're going down the street, uh, uh, corrupting Roy Orbison's lyrics, uh, singing to themselves, silly woman walking down the street, silly woman, kind I like to meet. That's their whole objective. The dafter, the better. The crazier, the better. The more gullible, the better. The more distressed and disturbed, the better. It's a target audience. Paul says, Timothy, you need to understand this. What are these women like? Well, you'll see in the text. They are burdened with sins, and they are led astray by various passions. Now, he doesn't articulate what this is. But that's enough for us to know, isn't it? They were burdened, and they they were bewildered, and yes, they were bewitched as well. Bewitched, burdened, and bewildered. These are the ones that they'll be going for, he says. Now, what is this? Well, it's a sad picture, isn't it? It's a sad picture of women who are curious, needy, gullible, susceptible, and particularly susceptible to the approaches of these charlatans who were probably attractive and charismatic characters. I mean, silly they may be and involved in various passions and burdened by guilt, But there's no reason to think that they would find ogres and obviously malevolent characters as a source of comfort and inspiration for them. Now, the ones we've got to watch are the ones we don't think we need to watch. In my notes, I found a comment that I can't source, but it was a good comment, so I put them back in, describing these, these individuals. They are women oppressed by feelings of guilt and eager to try any quack remedy which does not require them to abandon their sins. They don't want to give up on their passions, but somehow or another they want to get their guilt fixed. If I could be relieved of my guilt, but still at the same time continue doing what I'm doing. Well, of course, you're never going to get that answer in the gospel. 
But you may get the answer in a pseudo-gospel. And notice what he says. That burdened in this way, and led by various passions, they are, verse 7, always learning, and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Their curiosity, fed by these nebulous notions, eventually renders them incapable of arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And that phrase there, a knowledge of the truth, is used again in the pastorals, and it simply is a statement concerning the gospel itself, that this knowledge of the truth is the truth of all that God has done for us in Jesus, that he has provided an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he has been raised for our justification, that he intercedes for us, and so on, and that in him there is forgiveness, and there is cleansing, and there is hope, and there is transformation. But somehow or another, that never registers. Somehow or another, they get the cross, but they also get the crystals. So you see them driving in the car, and they have a cross hanging from the rearview mirror, and they have crystals hanging alongside the cross. I hope you don't. Well, what are they doing? Presumably hedging their bets. Well, maybe there's something in that old age of that Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe there's something in the new age, and so on. I, I don't really know. Remember, I told you in the early part of the summer, I came through Chagrin Falls and found a number of these ladies banging on drums in the town hall in Chagrin. There were one or two men, but the vast majority were women. It's not very nice of me to say I don't know their hearts. But I guess they were curious, probably gullible, and definitely an easy target for religious hucksters. You'll notice that these individuals operate very carefully. They are those who creep. They creep into households. Why? Because they're creeps. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Creeps creep. Whether they creep in through the waves of the Internet or the television, or the driveway. In the NIV, it says that they worm their way into the homes of weak old women. They come, they come worming their way in. They're deceptive. They're infiltrators. They have enough of the truth to con people. But when you push to the very core of it, they deny the things that lie at the heart of the gospel. Essentially, what Timothy is saying here to Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus is, you need to be alert to the presence of these weak women, because you have a responsibility to the women in your congregation. And you need also to be aware of the strategy of these bad men. So, weak women and bad men. They employ the tactics of religious propaganda. Actually, they, they, there's nothing new about this tactical approach. If you read the Bible from the very beginning, you find that this is, this is the devil's tactic, isn't it? Straight into the Garden of, Garden of Eden and straight for Eve. If I can get her, I'll probably get Adam as well. Think of all the discord that then ensues within the initial family. 
the jealousy and the bitterness and the murderous hatred that just engulfs them. Susceptible to lies. Did God really say that? A little bit of the truth, because he said that, but not all of that. And so confusion and infiltration and deception. And so here we are all these years later in Ephesus, and these heretical teachers are still using the same methodology. Their approach is insidious. It is beguiling. And their approach, he says, is actually not dissimilar, verse 8, to Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses. Oh, you say, well, who in the world were they? I never read about them in the Bible. No, they're not in the Bible except for here. Well, aren't they back with Moses? No, they're never identified as Janus and Jambres when you read Exodus 7. But when you read Exodus 7, you will discover that there were magicians who duplicated what Aaron was doing. Aaron had a rod, and he exercised the authority of God by the directive of Moses the prophet. And the, the con men came along and said, we can, we can do that too. You have this, we have one of these as well. You can do that, we can do that. And as Jewish tradition emerged, the names of these characters were attached to the incidents back in Exodus. And that's why Paul, having been brought up under Gamaliel, within the context of Jewish instruction, would have been familiar with who the characters were. These, these magicians who opposed the work of God. These charlatans who were around. They're always around. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is the Word of God. You don't have to go going around saying, oh, I think maybe, perhaps. No, it just actually says it in the Bible. Moses was a great prophet, and he was opposed by these characters. And Paul is the apostle, and he's opposed. And Timothy, you're going to be the pastor, and you're going to be opposed as well. Now, what makes it so difficult, of course? is the way in which the characters involved use terminology that is biblical, but they distort its meaning. They use biblical terminology, but they distort its meaning. I've told you this many times before, and you'll come up against this. I have been in churches where the fellow has been affirming for me the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, it, and if I wasn't listening carefully, I wouldn't have realized that what he was talking about was something very, very different from what the New Testament says about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus says that he was died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Bodily, physically, identifiably was risen from the dead. And the reality of his physical risen presence transformed the disciples. This character who's in the pulpit telling everybody about the resurrection actually believed that the resurrection was a spiritual resurrection. That he didn't actually physically rise from the dead, but he rose spiritually and he invaded the minds of his disciples. And they had a spiritual kind of resurrection, a sort of new age resurrection all of their own. And the people who are sitting listening, they don't realize that their pastor does not believe in the risen physical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But he uses the terminology. That's why we have to read our Bibles. That's why I always tell you, you better read the Bible to find out if what myself and my colleagues are telling you is in this book. This is serious. Not just for our own generation, but for the generations who follow us. My own nation was known historically as the, as the nation of the book. What book? The Bible. Where's the Bible now? Largely missing from the vast majority of pulpits. How did that happen? 
because men did not pay careful attention. Now notice that Paul is quite prepared to call it like it is. These men, he says, oppose the truth. They oppose the truth. You don't, need, you don't really need much to... Uh, I mean, that doesn't need any exposition, does it? Truth, oppose the truth. When you have time this afternoon, you might want to read Acts chapter 13, an amazing story in there about Paul and Barnabas proclaiming the gospel, the word of God, uh, in, the, in the synagogues. And uh, they're in Paphos on Cyprus. And uh, Luke tells us that there came a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So here you have this political figure, an intelligent man. He realizes that Paul and Barnabas have something to say. He wants to hear from them, so he summons them. They come to speak, and along comes Elymas the magician. And Elymas the magician opposed them. Why? Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's what he was doing. He didn't want, he didn't want the Sergius Paulus uh, to, to, to trust this Jesus that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. And so Paul said, well, it doesn't really matter. There's all kinds of different ways you can go at this. And Bar Jesus, you're a nice man. And, you know, I've, I've always liked your name, and, and, uh, and I've heard about you, and you've done some amazing tricks at some of the parties that have been around. I mean, you really are terrific. And we can all get on well together. We'll be fine. It's not a problem. I mean, we, we're explaining it one way, and you're explaining it another way. After all, we all have our own truth, don't we? Now, you're looking at me, but you're not looking in your Bible to see whether this is in the Bible. You've already decided that can't possibly be what he said. No, but you're not ready for what he did say. Let me tell you what he said. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? He put his finger on exactly what he was doing. You're just making crooked what is absolutely straight. You remember he said to Paul, to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to make sure that you cut it straight. The word that is used is for cutting a garment so that it lines up so that the shoulder sets in or whatever it might be. Make sure you cut it absolutely straight. You can't be going weaving all over the place. These characters were weaving all over the place. Paul had faced it in Paphos. He identified it as a potential in Ephesus. And now he warns Timothy. They oppose the truth. They are corrupted in mind. And they are disqualified regarding the faith. You see, this is part of the challenge of our time, isn't it? Is people say, well, who's to say you're right? Who's to say you're wrong? And you see, as soon as you, as soon as you dispense with the Bible, you, you have nothing, you, you have no basis upon which to adjudicate on anything. Why do we believe what we believe about the nature of marriage? Because of what God's Word says. Why do we believe what we believe about the person and work of Jesus? Because of what God's Word says. 
Why then would we identify something as being opposed to the truth? Which truth? It's this truth. That these men's minds would be depraved, diverted, corrupted. Who says? Me? No, not me. My mind may one day become depraved and corrupted. And disqualified. It doesn't say they are as, as far as faith is concerned, they're disqualified. No, there's a definite article. As far as the faith is concerned, they are disqualified. What is the faith? The faith once delivered to the saints. For which Jude says, I was going to write to you a bunch of different stuff, but I determined that I would have to write to you to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Why? Because if you don't contend for the faith as a body of absolutely understandable doctrine, then there will be those among you who say, you don't need to pay attention to that. You don't need to be as defined as that. You don't need to be as clear as that. There are a number of ways you can go at this. There are various views on the gospel. After all, you're a hard nut and so on. And the real question is, right here, it's no surprise that Timothy is going to, get, going to get verse 16 at the end of chapter 3. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof and for training of righteousness. That's what Paul is leading to. But here, let's finish on a positive note, because Paul finishes on a positive note. He says, you've got the weak women, you've got the bad men, but you've got a sovereign Lord. You have a sovereign Lord. He says, they may have another day in the sun, you can look at verse 13, but eventually their folly will become apparent to everyone. Eventually, the day will come when it will be apparent that the house that they tried to build, they were trying to build with cardboard, and the city of God will remain. The charlatans will eventually be exposed. And church history reveals that to be the case, doesn't it? You can go in a second-hand bookstore, especially a theological bookstore, and find all these little books about, about heresies from the past. You can buy them for like 25 cents because they're, they're, they're finished. Oh, they may be arriving in another disguise, but, but it's over. And you know, think about uh, living, living here this last while. We've had, we've had Sung Young Moon at the Moonies, remember? We've had the Branch Davidian. We've had Jim Jones in the Lemonade. We've had Harry Krishna. Not to mention the cultic activities which continue in our own valley right around us. The quasi-gospels, the pseudo-gospels of Jehovah's Witnesses, of Unitarianism, of Christian science, of Mormonism, and of an external moribund religiosity represented in so many different places. But Timothy, just remember this. God is not remotely upset or concerned or threatened by counterfeits. If we can picture God, if I might say so reverently, the idea that God somehow is looking down and going, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Wow. No, from our perspective, from the perspective of first century Ephesus, Christianity was trembling on the brink of annihilation. Was it going to make it from the apostolic church to the post-apostolic church? Would Timothy hold the line? Would he entrust it to faithful men? Would the next generation grow up to love and follow God? That was the question. From a human perspective, you couldn't say. From God's perspective, it was never in doubt. The same is true of us today. 
That's why Paul is concerned that Timothy will just keep his head, that he will endure hardship, that he will do the work of an evangelist, that he will discharge all the duties of his ministry, because Jesus has said, I will build my church. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of hell will not actually be able to prevail against it. And that, you see, helps us at the end of the day to say, how do we handle the strategy of these bad men? How do we care for these weak-willed women? And the answer is, in the sovereign proviso of God himself. If we had time, I could take you to John 4, which I don't. You'll be relieved to know. And we could engage in the encounter between Jesus and a weak-willed woman who was apparently always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. She was swayed by all kinds of passions. She'd had five husbands, and she had a live-in lover. If ever there was somebody in need of living water, it was the lady at the well. And what happened to her? She found it. Found it where? In a philosophy? No, in a person. Just in any person? No, in one person. The only one. The only one who can deal with our swayed hearts and with our burdened lives. So whether you are a silly man or a silly woman, I commend you to the wisdom that is found in Jesus. Father, thank you that when we bow beneath the authority of your word, things actually begin to make sense. Every day we're buffeted by all kinds of notions and ideas. And we're so thankful that your word shines like a light on our pathway. Come to us, Lord, I pray. Come to some of us who may be burdened by sins and and led astray by passions. And we've been looking for all kinds of answers, but we somehow or another have never bowed our knee to Jesus. Grant that today we may do so. And, And remind those of us who are tempted to get completely discombobulated by all this stuff that Jesus Christ is a sovereign and a reigning Lord and King, that nothing is actually out of control, nor will it get out of control. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. See the difference? (laughs) Yeah, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>